The following production is brought to you by Derek Lamont Enterprises, a subsidiary of LBM Entertainment, exclusively licensed for use on Patreon.com. Enjoy the show. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Patreon.com slash the Derek Lamont Experience. I'm your host, Derek Lamont Jackson, as always, here with you. This is episode two of our series, Coast Notia, this thing of ours. Uh, episode one, of course, covered The Godfather. Episode two, we will be covering The Godfather 2, which is probably one of the greatest films of all time. Uh, I think it's listed as number two uh, behind only Citizen Kane, which I still haven't seen it. At some point, I'm actually going to watch it. Um, I, I Again, I haven't seen Citizen Kane, but I have a hard time believing it's better than The Godfather Part 2. I really want to see this film now. Uh, Orson Welles' uh, deal. So, yeah, at some point, I'm going to actually sit down and take the time to actually watch that film. But again, as I stated, we are here talking about The Godfather Part 2. Um, this is regarded as a masterpiece in American cinema. Um, some people, again, not to just like, you know, recycle what I've said and, and repeat myself, but some people regard it as the greatest film of all time. Um, I, 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 yeah, yeah, I could say it's definitely one of my top, it's definitely in my top five, um, it depends on what day you ask me whether I prefer this or the original Godfather. I don't know. Again, there is that seven-hour supercut um, that appeared on HBO. Um, to be completely honest with you, I, you, you, they don't have it on there anymore. It's not on HBO Max. It wasn't on HBO Go before they ended that or whatever have you. I spent most of the morning trying to find a torrent for it because I have to see this thing. It's literally in chronological order. So it starts all the way when Don Vito was a boy leaving Italy, and it goes from that point on up through Michael joining the army. I'm sorry, joining the was he Michael a Marine or he joins the armed forces after Pearl Harbor is bombed, and then you know the events of the Godfather, and then the events of the Godfather Two, where Michael is the the head of the family and things like that. So I really have to see that thing. Um, again. Great fucking film. Um, probably one of the greatest films of all time. And I'm going to probably say that a million other times. But, you know, it, you have to give credit where credit is due. The Godfather Part Two is a 1974 American epic crime film produced and directed by Francis Ford Coppola from the screenplay co-written with Mario Puzo. Starring Al Pacino, Robert Duvall, Diane Keaton, Robert De Niro, Talia Shire, Morgana King, John Cazale, Mariana Hill, and Lee Strasberg. It is the second installment of the Godfather trilogy partially based on Puzo's 1969 novel, The Godfather. The film is both a sequel and a prequel to The Godfather, presenting parallel dramas. One picks up the 1958 story of Michael Corleone, um, the new Don of the Corleone family, protecting the family business in the aftermath of an attempt on his life. The prequel covers the journey of his father, Vito Corleone, from his Sicilian childhood to the founding of the family enterprise in New York City. Um, shit, I was just about to say something, and now I can't remember it. Um... God damn it, this is crazy. So in the second one, when you, the prequel portions, it shows how Don Vito met Clemenza and met uh, Sel, uh, Tessio and how, uh, you know, him working for Jinko Abadondo's father and things like that and then forming Jinko Olive Oil and things like that. It covers a lot of ground. It is a phenomenal, phenomenal piece. Um, the only parts of The Godfather 2 I really don't care for are the Senate hearings, um, it's like, I don't know, watch C-SPAN for like five hours, five, not even five hours, five minutes and you'll be bored out of your fucking mind. 
and that's not me saying that that portion of the film is that boring, but I just, I, I could do without the Senate hearings and things like that. Following, excuse me, following the success of the first film, Paramount Pictures began developing a follow-up to the film with much of the same cast and crew returning. Coppola, who was given more creative control over the film, had wanted to make both a sequel and prequel to the film that would tell the story of the rise of Vito and the fall of Michael. Principal photography began in October of 1973 and wrapped in June of 1974. The Godfather Part II premiered in New York City on December 12, 1974 and was released in the United States on December 20, 1974. Receiving divided reviews from critics, but its reputation, however, improved rapidly and soon became the subject of a critical reevaluation. It grossed between $48 and $88 million worldwide on a $13 million budget. The film became the first sequel to win for Best Picture. Its six Oscar wins also included Best Director for Coppola, Best Supporting Actor for De Niro, and Best Adapter Screenplay for Coppola and Puzo. Pacino won the BAFTA Award for Best Actor and was nominated for the Academy Award for Best Actor as well. Some have deemed it superior to The Godfather like its predecessor, Part Two, remains a highly influ- influential film, especially in the gangster genre and is considered to be one of the greatest films of all time. In 1997, the American Film Institute ranked it uh, as the 32nd greatest film in American history. That's bullshit. It's definitely higher than that. And it retained its position 10 years later. It was selected for preservation in the U.S. National Film Registry Registry of the Library of Congress in 1993, being deemed culturally, culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. The Godfather Part Three, the final installment in the trilogy, was released in 1990. It is an absolute snooze fest. Uh, no shade to the actors of the third film. By that time, you didn't get a lot of people back. Um, James Conn obviously dead, but he makes an appearance in The Godfather Part Two in a flashback at the end of the film. Uh, this is what I was going to say. Speaking of the actors, um, Hyman Ross, uh, he's called the messenger boy um, by somebody in the film, Johnny Ola. The guy who plays Johnny Ola is Dominic Chianti. He's actually Uncle Junior, a.k.a. Corrado Soprano Jr. in The Sopranos. So, of course, I have to give a shout-out to Dominic Chianti. He actually just turned 90 not too long ago. And, of course, The Sopranos prequel, The Many Saints of Newark, is coming. And we've heard that there's actually going to be more sequels. So, The Many Saints is probably going to be the story of Dickie Montesanti. Apparently, there's a voiceover from Michael Imperioli. Uh, as Christopher Moltisanti, so that's going to be really cool as well, but apparently we're going to get more stories, so we're probably going to see the rise of Tony Soprano at some point. If we don't see Tony and his crew take down the card game in this film, I would have to believe it's going to be in the next one, because we're almost guaranteed a sequel unless it bombs at the box office, which is crazy because of COVID and all that stuff. But anyway, we're talking about The Godfather Part Two right now. Um... Just, there's so much that I could say about this film, and so much so many other people can say. Um, Speaking of which, there is a review from Roger Ebert. I'm going to actually go over that. And then there's actually six reasons The Godfather Part II is a superior movie. And I'm going to run those down really quickly. Number one, the origins of Don Corleone. Marlon Brando's portrayal of Don Corleone is one for the ages. The performance transcends the craft of acting because Brando disappears and the viewer actually believes Don Vito Corleone is a living, breathing person instead of an actor playing a role. The sequel tells the story of how young Vito Andolini escapes certain death in his birthplace of Corleone, Sicily, after his mother and father are murdered by a local mafia Don. The young boy travels to America, living the immigrant experience all by himself, and Vito's last name is changed from Andolini to Corleone during a clerical era when he arrives at Ellis Island. Um... 
that actually happened quite a lot when people arrived at Ellis Island. So a lot of people don't really know their family lineage because their names were changed upon arrival here in the United States of America. Um, so I don't know. That's interesting. Um, but then uh, Robert Nero takes the mantle from Brando and accomplishes the same acting feat by becoming a younger Vito Corleone. His performance is just as powerful as Brando's and being a method actor De Niro would go on and win an Oscar this time for Best Supporting Actor and is the only American actor to win an Oscar by reciting his dialogue in a foreign language. That's very impressive. I did not know that that was the case, so shout out to Robert De Niro. Uh, my favorite role of De Niro is Jimmy the Gent Conway in Goodfellas. And actually saying that, just to let you guys know, Episode 3 will actually cover Goodfellas, so stay tuned for that. Um, but... Yeah, he, De Niro, did a phenomenal job. Um, so shout out to him. That's actually really dope, speaking Italian. He literally spoke Italian for the bulk of his role. He only broke Italian, like, once, and it garnered him, you know, the best supporting actor, so that's absolutely phenomenal. Um, we watch as De Niro delivers a restrained and subtle performance of a hardworking immigrant who struggles to raise his small family after losing his job. Vito is reluctantly introduced to a life of crime by his neighbor, Peter Clemenza, but takes the leadership role once Vito assassinates a local na neighborhood gangster, Don Finucci. De Niro's performance is brilliant because throughout the transformation, he remains humble and devoid of ego, and the storyline retains the same romanticism from the first film as opposed to the darker storyline belonging to Michael Corleone. The crazy thing about this is that's the thing, and that's why we... Most people love The Godfather because of what Brando brought to Don Corleone and then The Godfather too, because of what de niro brought to corleone never did he waver he never raises his voice his temper the only time we hear him raise his voice is in the godfather one where johnny fontaine is crying and he's like i don't know what to do and you know don vito's like you can act like a man other than that he doesn't raise his voice they say if you read the book he never raised his voice at his wife carmela corleone and he never hit his kids from my understanding and um that's why it, it, if you have the chance to read the book, you absolutely should. It's phenomenal. Um, the movie, absolutely great as well, but the book is just on a whole entirely other level. But, um, yeah, Brando's performance and De Niro's performance, it, it, like, it's, like it says, it romanticizes Don Vito Corleone, and it like, romanticizes the life of crime. And, of course, you know, there's a story that Michael tells in the first one where Luca Brazzi put the gun to the guy's head and he's like, either your signature is going to be on this contract or your brains. It's your decision. I'm going to make him an offer he can't, he can't refuse. It's one of the most popular lines in all of film history. And not even just film history. It's Americana. It's Americana just as much as Norman Rockwell paintings and apple pie and Pepsi and Coke and the Yankees and uh, Dallas Cowboys football. It's all Americana. And him saying, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse, it's just the absolute same way. So, um, again, shout out to Marlon Brando, but also shout out to, uh, you know, Bobby De Niro because he did a phenomenal job uh, capturing the younger version of Corleone. And, uh, you know, when he goes back to uh, Corleone, which is actually the town he's from, his name was Andolini, and they, you know, Vito Andolini from Corleone, and they just changed it. Oh, your name is Vito Corleone now. Uh, you know, at the end, when he goes back and kills the guy who's the reason for him even having to, you know, vacate the country and go to America, that's always a very interesting scene. Um, 
The second reason, father and son, the movie juxtaposes the lives of Vito Corleone and his son Michael Corleone at similar ages and is a prime example of the sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. Um, there's a Jay-Z line. I can't remember which, sign, which song it is, but it's, you know, um, I got demons on the wet. I got demons in my past, so I got daughters in the way. If the prophecy's correct, then the child should have to pay. And that's something that not to be, like, I'm not saying this for shock value. I've done, I haven't, like, committed any crimes. You know, I, I generally don't drink. Uh, that's widely known. I've never been one to, you know, use substances, not even marijuana or anything like that. I don't pop pills or anything like that. Uh, I don't steal. I don't commit crimes. Have I often been very, you know, I haven't been the greatest boyfriend. I can tell you that. I'll be very forthcoming about that. I've broken a lot of hearts in my day. I've had my heart broken too, but I've broken a lot of hearts in my day. And I have to, as a man, stand up and say that. And people often ask, like, how do you feel if somebody would have done that to your daughter? I'd be fucking pissed. But it didn't stop me from doing the things I did. So again, prime example, the sins of the father are to be laid upon the children. Uh, Vito solely rises to power and go on to achieve wealth and power, control over polit uh, politicians and judges, the ability to form alliances with other powerful gangsters, and to have many loyal capos do to do his bidding. He was a man that was revered and loved. And, you know, even in the very beginning of The Godfather, they come to pay homage to him. You know, they're there for a favor. Don't get it twisted. They know it's the day of his daughter's wedding. He cannot refuse any request. But they're also there to pay homage. Like, even on small requests, they're kissing his hand. They call him Godfather, a term of endearment. Don Vito meant the world to these people. And that's just the evidence is that, of that is, you know, in the advent of his funeral in the film, all the flowers and things that were sent and the many, many people that showed up. He was very, very revered. So, again, it, it's a juxtapose of the situation of where they were at these, these times in their lives. Whereas Michael is very cunning but also very dark. And he's the one who didn't want to join the family business. Sonny 100% wanted to be involved. And even in the book, Don Vito, you know, they talk about, um, there's a scene in, in The Godfather 2, we actually discussed it already, where he kills Finucci, and then he basically assumes power over the neighborhood. And, you know, Sonny commits a crime, and the Don is furious, and he's like, what gives you the right? And he's like, I saw you kill Finucci. And... The Don just sat down because there was nothing he could do to defend, you know, his actions. He's like, I, what I've done, you know, is, is turns you to this life of crime. And at that point, he basically turned Sonny over to Clemenza to be trained in the ways of the street because he knew there was really nothing he could do at that point. Um, now, however, Don Corleone's sins have been passed on to Michael as his father had influence in the world of politics. His son is being dragged before a congressional hearing to testify, testify about his connections to organized crime. And the local center in his new hometown of Las Vegas shows nothing but content for Michael. A former business associate of Don Corleone, Hyman Roth, is trying to kill his son in secret and utilizes one of his loyal capos to undermine Michael's power. Unfortunately, that would be Fredo. And that's the infamous kiss of death comes from the, the Godfather Part 2. Everybody's like, oh, kiss of death, kiss of death. That's where it comes from. Michael telling Fredo, I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. And kissing him at the stroke of midnight on New Year's Eve. So, you know, that's another, you know, the kiss on New Year's Eve, that's another piece of Americana. Well, where did that, well, obviously it is Americana, but from the point on where we kiss somebody and we really want them out of our lives, you call it the kiss of death. And sometimes it does end in somebody's life, somebody losing their life. That came from the Godfather part two. 
the foundation that Don Corleone built is coming back to haunt his son, bringing him nothing but grief and tragedy. The parallel storylines prove that no one can escape karma, and even if Don Corleone didn't suffer or pay for all of his sins, his son Michael must surely answer for them. Uh, Michael loses his wife, you know, and that's the second wife he's lost. You know, uh, Apollonia got blown up by the car bomb in the first one, and then at the end of the second one, him and Kay split up because, you know, she she tells Michael she aborted their child because she couldn't stand, it was a boy, and I aborted him because I couldn't stand to bring another one of your sons into this world. You know, you're a horrible person. You told me you would never be like this. You said you'd never be a man like your father, and things were going to be different, and here you are doing the same things. So Michael eventually lost his family to the point that Anthony, Mary always loved him, and that's talked about in The Godfather 3, but Anthony knows that Michael had Fredo killed the same way that Sonny knew that uh, Vito killed Finucci. These things just continue to go along, and it's like, that's the thing about this. There's only one way in and one way out. You prick your finger and you take that oath. It's natural death or, you know, the other way. Now, I'm not sure if Fredo was a made man, if he actually took the oath or anything like that. And I don't know if Sonny was either. But at that point, if I had lost my father, natural causes, but honestly, him being shot five times probably sped up the progression. But my brother was riddled with bullets. My wife blew up in a car, a fucking car bombing. The last thing I'm going to do is continue to remove people from my life, my family members. And I also had my brother-in-law killed because he's responsible for my brother's death. Michael is a very, very, it's, it's a dangerous, slippery, slippery slope that Michael was treading on. And I often wonder how or even why or just, there's just not a, an ounce of humanity left in you. And that kind of goes back to the way Kay felt, and that's why Kay left. But, you know, the very ending scene, Michael sitting there deep in thought in that chair where he has the flashback to where he and Sonny get into an argument because Michael joined the armed forces after Pearl Harbor was bombed. And um, is there any ounce of humanity left in him? And that's the difference between he and his father. Don Vito, very humane and, and, and things like that. And, you know... Um, Initially, him being involved was to help out, you know, a friend of his wife's. And, you know, it, it just kind of went from there. But at the same time, Don Vito, he showed compassion. And Michael shows almost no compassion, to be completely honest. And that's why Kay left. We're very much aware of that. And then to go on and find out, you know, in The Godfather 3, that Anthony is very much aware that Michael had Fredo killed. It's You're repeating this cycle. But again... When you join that that life, you know, when they say the omerta, number one, that's the first rule. You practice silence. But number two, this thing of ours, there's only one way in. You get your finger pricked. This is for life. And then there's one way out. And that's death, either either natural causes or um, somebody takes you out. You know, it's like it's like Goodfellas where they say that your killers come with smiles, you know, Tessio, I think when he made the deal in, in the God, first Godfather, he was just trying to secure himself for the long haul because they, and, and, and Clemenza said it, once, you know, Don Vito, once you're gone, they're going to eat us alive. They knew that. And then Don Vito told him, whichever one makes the deal with Barzini is the traitor. And it just, it, there had to be some compassion for Michael 
this is his father's oldest friend. It's like an uncle, one of his father's oldest friends, Pete and, and, and Sally. And you had Tessio killed. And I understand because there's just no turning back when you're in that life. But here we are. Would Don Vito have had Tessio killed? Maybe. We don't know. We'll never find out. We'll never find out. You know, we'll never find out how, how the war would have went had Luca Brazzi not been killed. That's another thing. So this is like the Godfather 2, there's a, a bunch of themes, but um, it's, it's just the way everything plays out. It's, it's beautiful. It's almost artistic in a certain aspect. And it's crazy to say that because obviously it's murder, you know, murder for hire. But it, it's almost artistic in a way. And that sounds really, really fucked up for me to say that. Again, the third reason why The Godfather Part Two is a superior film, Francis Ford Coppola, the young director, burst onto the scene as part of the new Hollywood wave of filmmakers after co-writing the Oscar-winning screenplay for Patton. Starring George C. Scott, Hollywood took notice after several, several well-known directors turned down the opportunity to direct The Godfather, including Sergio Leone, Peter Bogdanovich, and Costa Gavras. Producer Robert Evans wanted an Italian-American to direct the film, and Francis Ford Coppola was hired for the job. However, soon after signing on as a director, the nightmare began for the young filmmaker when Mario Puzo's novel became a huge bestseller and suddenly studio executives had second thoughts about hiring Coppola. Again, the book is absolutely amazing. It is absolutely amazing. And that's the thing about reading books that are actually adapted into film. If you've never seen the film, when you read the book, you're reading the words and you're creating this world in your mind. How these characters look, how they dress how these events are taking place, things like that. And then you see it on screen, it's like, mm, that's not the way it went down in my head. So um, the director is very, very important because it's the director's vision that we're seeing on the screen. The screen, like the writer writes the screenplay, but it's the director's vision to get that from the pages of the script onto the screen. And then it's their vision that we're seeing. And this is probably why they worried because the book had become a bestseller, and you have this young kid you've attached to the picture. Uh, the legendary filmmaker summed up his experience during that time. Uh, the Godfather was a very unappreciated movie when we were making it. They were very unhappy with it. They didn't like the cast. They didn't like the way I was shooting it. I was also always on the verge of getting fired, so it was an extremely nightmarish experience. I had two little kids, and the third one was born during that. We lived in a little apartment. I was basically frightened that they didn't like it. They had as much as said that, so when it was all over, I wasn't all confident that I was, it was going to be successful and that I'd ever get another job. When The Godfather was released, it became a commercial and critical success, and Paramount wanted to produce a sequel. However, Coppola didn't want to direct the next installment after the horrible treatment he received from the studio. Coppola agreed to produce the next film, but wanted Martin Scorsese to direct the sequel. Now, that would have been interesting because Marty Scorsese is basically known as the godfather of the gangster genre from what he did with Goodfellas, The Departed, and other films of that nature. Um, that's why everybody was so quick to watch, I think it's called The Irishman, um, on Netflix because it was a Scorsese film. And you put him back in the mix with Joe Pesci and guys like that. This is what he does. Um, telling the story of Jimmy Hoffa, that's a hell of a fucking story to tell. We still don't know what happened to Jimmy Hoffa, right? So it's just interesting to think about what if Marty Scorsese had done The Godfather Part Two? You know, already adding to his already fucking crazy film lineage, you add in this film. But at the same time, would it be held in the same regard as the Coppola version? That's also a question. It's a bunch of what ifs. Um... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, 
The studio made nice with Coppola by buying him a Mercedes, and he eventually agreed to direct Part 2. The director had to say this about the approach to the second film. I worked very hard in The Godfather Part 2 to try to have you feel what these people were feeling. One of the strengths of the sequel is the way it pulls in the viewer uh, emotionally from watching Vito Corleone's mother being blown away with a shotgun in his home in Sicily. And when, let me tell you, when she took that fucking shot from that shotgun... I don't know how they produced that on set in real time, if they sped up the film, or I don't know if that was something that you did back then, but um, I've got to tell you, I've never seen, you know, like, the impact, like, the way she took that shot, it really makes you believe she may have been shot, like, it was crazy. Um, Or years later in New York, when an adult Vito refuses to refuses the handout by his former boss after losing his job, or when Michael Corleone discovers his brother is a traitor within his family while in Cuba and gives him a kiss before reciting the line, "I know it was you, Fredo. You broke my heart. You broke my heart again." The kiss of death, one of the f- most famous scenes in cinema history. While the first Godfather was more of a nostalgic experience, the sequel has more heart. Even though the second film is darker than the first, Coppola's skill at bringing out incredible performances from his actors as well as his storytelling abilities would earn him an Oscar for Best Director. And Coppola is the reason why The Godfather Part II is held as one of the greatest films of all time. Number four, Gordon Willis. The late cinematographer Gordon Willis is one of the most influential directors of photography of all time. His style of underexposing his films and his use of shadows prompted his best friend, and fellow cinematographer Conrad Hall to give him the nickname the Prince of Darkness. His style of photography has influenced films to this uh, use. I'm sorry, influenced films up to this very day. The technique of lighting he pioneered is known as crushing the blacks. As a producer, on a small budget independent film, but a producer nonetheless, uh, I'm going to tell you the cinematographer is so important. Uh, the writer and director very important. The cast obviously important as well. Without Andrew. And what he was able to do in conjunction with James, what they were able to do to bring our film to life is second to none. And I'm forever indebted to both of those gentlemen, not only as a friend, but for what they allowed me to be a part of. And um, the film will be available on Tubi to stream and I will let you guys know when. But again, what they what what they did, James's eye and Andrew's vision unmatched and i being a parent obviously super proud other than that this is the second most important thing i'm proud of so uh for the godfather movies willis created a yellow tone for the films that has been copied in just about every movie that's a period piece willis had this to say about the visual contrast in the godfather you can decide this movie has a dark uh, palette but you can spend two hours in a dark palette so you've got this high key kodak uh, kodachrome wedding going on now you go back inside, it's dark again. You can't, in my mind, put both feet into a bucket of cement and leave them there for the whole movie. It doesn't work. You must have this relativity. And the way he lit the movie is phenomenal because Connie's wedding reception is going on outside in the first one. And then you go inside in Don Corleone's office and it's dark like death. So what Gordon Willis did with this project was absolutely phenomenal. And then he turned around and did it again on Godfather 2 because you're at Lake, I think they're at Lake Tahoe in Nevada. And it's Michael's, I'm sorry, Anthony's uh, got uh, confirmation and it's, you know, beautiful. There's boats out in the lake. It's awesome. And then you get inside Michael's office and the same thing. It's dark as shit in there, almost menacing. And that sets the tone for Michael to be the menacing character that he is. 
For The Godfather Part 2, Willis made the film darker as Michael Corleone becomes a darker person himself, and even this Prince of Darkness will later admit that for the second film, he went too far with the underexposing, especially a scene between Michael and his mother when he asked her if it's possible to lose your family. Coppola described Willis' style. He has a natural sense of structure and beauty, not unlike a Renaissance artist. And that scene is very, very dark. You can't, it's, it's so dark that you can hardly make out their facial features. But it's shot very, very well. It's shot very, very well. I very much am impressed. And Gordon Willis, phenomenal. Number five, Lee Strasberg. Strasberg was a legend in the acting community and is considered the father of method acting. As the director of the Actors Studio in New York, he trained countless actors, including Paul Newman, Al Pacino, Dustin Hoffman, and Jane Fonda. Playing the role of Hyman Ross Strasberg proved that not only was he a great teacher of the craft, but he was also an incredible actor himself. The character of Hyman Roth is based off the real-life gangster Meyer Lansky, and Roth seems more dangerous the entire, than the entire five families which Michael eliminated in the first Godfather film. Roth attacks Michael on two fronts. He tries to have him killed, and he has his former associates of the Corleone family testify against Michael at a congressional hearing, which can lead to incarceration. Michael and Roth play cat-and-mouse game, uh, who can eliminate who first, and Strasburg gives a powerful performance of an old man pretending he has one fit in the grave, all while plotting to bring down Michael Corleone. And to this day, I still don't know why Hyman Roth wanted Michael gone. I don't know if it's because he was amassing power, because he sent Johnny Ola to tell him, if you move against, um, I forget, the brothers who own the casinos that Michael wanted, he said, our friend in Miami will go along, speaking of Hyman Roth. Why Roth tried to have Michael killed, I'm going to have to do a deep dive on that because I still don't understand that. You know, Michael said he, he wants me out of the way, but he acts like I'm his heir. Um, you know, the the attempt on his life at his home. Um, once you get that one shot and you don't get it, then how do you go from that point on? And that's what made the film very, very eerie. Um, with Barzini, it was more about power and the Corleone family was holding back the other families from making money in the narcotic trade, right? But that's the thing about, you know, Don Barzini, because if Vito agrees to to deal with the Turk, the Corleones are going to make a lot more money. But there's also, like Don Vito said, the chance that they could lose political power and things like that. So that with Barzini, that battle and that 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 war was interesting. And that, again, was beautiful to watch it play out, especially when Don Vito realizes it was never Tatalia. It was Barzini all along because even Tom Hagen's like, no, no, you mean Tatalia. He's like, Tatalia's a pimp. He could have never outfought Santino. I didn't know that it was Don Barzini all along. So that made sense. I still to this day don't understand why Hyman Roth wanted Michael out of the way. But I tell you, Strasburg did a phenomenal job. The way he would lure you in with these stories about we used to run molasses your father, with trucks that your father gave us and we all made a fortune. And, you know, him talking about Mo Green being basically like him taking Mo Green under his, his wing. And, you know, is it revenge for Michael having Mo Green killed? You know? Um, so the Godfather two, again, the back and forth, it's very, very, it's delicate. There's so much, um, God, there's just so much to fucking say. And then there's like the deleted scenes. They don't even talk about number six, finally losing one's soul and the Godfather. We rooted for Michael Corleone when he avenged his father's assassination attempt by gunning down Salazzo and a crooked police captain inside a restaurant. 
When he took out the heads of the five families, Mo Green and his brother-in-law, once his father passed away, the audiences supported the bloodshed because we all knew Michael did it reluctantly as he tried to protect his family. I don't know how reluctant he was. Salazzo and the police captain, I get that. Barzini obviously was going to have to go for obvious reasons. Mo Green, Mo got a little hot. I'm not saying he should have been killed. Carlo, here's the thing. He was still married to your sister. And I love my brother-in-laws dearly. And my, you know, one of my sisters is actually on her second marriage. Uh, her first husband, I still love him. You know, he was like my big brother. And I still love him to this day. And he, I, it's not on me to say that he was a terrible husband. Because I said earlier in this episode, I have never been the greatest boyfriend to a lot of women that I've dated. I've just not been. And that's something I have to look in the mirror and deal with every day. Just like every, we all have to look in the mirror and deal with our deepest, darkest insecurities and fears and things like that. And that's something I have to deal with. But I would have never had my brother-in-law killed. So I don't know how reluctant Michael was. And him saying, you have to answer for Santino. Just, you gave him the plane ticket. Let him really get on the plane and go to fucking Vegas and cut him out of any family business. Let him learn how to eat on his own. You don't kill him, though. He, he's got kids. He's married to your sister. And if that really, if nothing else, that splintered the Corleone family. I believe if Carlo was still alive in The Godfather 2, Part 2, Michael and Connie's relationship would have been a bit better. Um, and it, it obviously got better at the end of the film, but their mother had to die first. Um, so um, in The Godfather Part 2, Michael is a very different man. He's embraced his role as a Don and has become... A darker individual, one who's intoxicated with the power he wields. Michael gives the orders to murder an innocent prostitute so they can frame and control a senator. And at this point, the audience can no longer support his bloodshed. See, that's something that you don't really catch in the film. It's that Senator Geary was doing, like, from my understanding, Senator Geary got a little too rough with the girl. So he said he blacked out. So now here's the thing. They drugged him, clearly blacked him out. So drugged him so he would black out and then they killed the prostitute and when he awoke he found her dead. It's like, oh, you're the only one who was in the room with her. So where you tried to oppose us, now guess what? I've got you in my back pocket. And that was Michael trying to be like his dad, but I don't think his dad would have went to those links. That was Michael getting a politician in his back pocket, the political support that Don Vito had. Don Vito earned that through trust and friendship. Michael killed a young woman to get this power. And that's very fucking crazy. And again, like that wasn't something I picked up on upon originally seeing the film. Uh, He exiles his wife once Michael learns she had an abortion, snatching her children away from her. After finding out his brother betrayed him and unwillingly helping Hyman Roth, he exiles his brother and puts a death sentence over his head. Uh, Killing Fredo was a tough one. That's a really, really tough one. And once Michael's mother passes away, he pretends to forgive his older brother, Fredo, as he gives a signal to his enforcer, Rocco, to proceed with the hit. Toward the end of the movie, Michael is outwitted Hyman Roth, but is so hell-bent on killing his nemesis that he sends one of his best enforcers on a suicide mission to kill the elderly gangster. Sending Rocco to kill Hyman Roth at the fucking airport. Come on, Michael. Did you really think Rocco was going to get out of there alive? Even if he did, he was going to jail. So, that's that's just... Michael Corleone, you know, in a nutshell. Like, do you really care about the people around you other than Anthony and Mary? Because you didn't, you threw Kay to the side. 
But Kay also wanted out herself, so there's that argument. So Michael is extremely fucking dark in this film. Uh, when Michael finally kills Fredo, we realize he's lost his soul and becomes a monster. This is the brilliance of The Godfather Part Two. It strips away the romanticism that pop culture has with the gangster lifestyle. Again, this is why I'm doing this thing. America's, a facet, America's fascination with Cosa Nostra. That's why I'm even doing this whole series. The People don't understand. The Sopranos is lauded as one of the greatest television shows of all time, and I will defend that to my dying day. But Tony Soprano is a fucking monster. James Gandolfini's brilliant. Tony Soprano's a fucking monster. And the crazy part is we're all rooting for Tony. We're rooting for him to hook up with Dr. Melfi because, let's face it, I love Lorraine Bracco going back to Goodfellas. Uh, especially when she, the, the scene where she curses Henry out after he stands her up. You think you Frankie Valley or some kind of big shot or something? And he said, I remember standing there in the street staring at her. She had these amazing eyes like Liz Taylor's. And you really see that. And that's, a, that's Marty Scorsese being at his absolute best capturing her eyes in that fashion but Lorraine Bracco is phenomenal so who didn't want Tony to hook up with Dr. Melfi and the Sopranos but also Christopher fucked around so much that when Tony killed him in the end it's like can you really blame him but it's still his nephew not not technically not his nephew but we know how it goes right so America has you know romanticized the Sicilian Mafia and again that's why I'm even doing this whole series so I understand what they're saying here he had lost his, he completely lost his fucking mind and he lost his soul. Um, it's letting the viewer know that the price is too high to pay for the wealth and power that comes with organized crime. And the last scene is almost poetic as Michael sits all alone in his backyard, contemplating, realizing he can never get his soul back. I don't know if that's exactly what he was thinking about. Of course, that leads into the, the, um, the flashback where, it, you know, we find out that Don Vito's birthday is actually the same day that Pearl Harbor was bombed and, and other men went and enlisted, so Michael did as well. And then Sonny was very upset at him. And Sonny's a hothead. We all know that. But that's why, you know, me and my cousins fucking love Sonny Corleone, right? Like, it's like fucking Sonny. Like, when Sonny dies, it's like I could go without watching the rest of the film. But what Michael does to the other members of the five families is orchestrated beautifully so you still watch. So, yeah, America does have this fascination with Costa Nostra, and, and it clearly plays out here. So again, RogerEbert.com has this review. Uh, looks like he gave it three stars, I'm guessing, out of five. Ebert goes on to say, Moving through the deep shadows and heavy glooms of the, his vast estate, Michael Corleone presides over the destruction of his own spirit in The Godfather Part Two. The character we recall from The Godfather and the best and brightest of Don Vito's sons, the one who went to college and enlisted in the Marines, grows into a cold and ruthless man obsessed with power. The film's closing scene gives us a first memory uh, of a long-ago family dinner, and then Michael at midlife cruel, closed, and lonely. He's clearly intended as a tragic figure. The Corleone saga is painted by Francis Ford Coppola and Mario Puzo in two films, totaling nearly seven hours. has been sort of a success story in reverse. In a crazy way, The Godfather and his sequel belong in the same category with those other epics of immigrant achievement in America, The Immigrants, and The New Land. The Corleone family worked hard, was ambitious, remembered friends, uh, never forgave disloyalty and started from humble beginnings to become the most powerful mafia organization in the country. If it were not that the family business was crime, these films could be an inspiration for us all. Coppola seems to hold a certain am uh, ambivalence toward his material. Don Vito Corleone, as portrayed by Marlon Brando in The Godfather, was a man of honor and dignity, and it was difficult not to sympathize with him playing with his grandchildren in the garden, at peace after a long lifetime of murder, extortion, and the rackets. 
What exactly were we supposed to think about him? How did Coppola feel toward The Godfather? The Godfather Part 2 moves both forward and backward in time from the events in The Godfather in an attempt to resolve our feelings about the Corleones. In doing so, it provides for itself a structural weakness from which the film never recovers. But it does uh, something even more disappointing. It reveals a certain simplicity in Coppola's notions of motivation and characterization that wasn't there in the elegant masterpiece of his earlier film. He gives us, first of all, the opening chapters in Don Vito's life. His family is killed by a mafia, Don in Sicily. He comes to America at the age of nine. He grows up to be played by Robert De Niro, of course, and edges into a career of crime, first as a petty anti-crook, and then as a neighborhood arranger and power, bro power broker, a man as the movie never tires of reminding us of respect. This story of Don Vito's younger days occupies perhaps a fourth of the film's 200 minutes. Coppola devotes the rest to Michael Corleone, who has taken over the family's business after his father's death has pulled out of New York and consolidated operations in Nevada and has ambitions to expand in Florida and Cuba. Michael is played again and brilliantly by Al Pacino. Among the other familiar faces are Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, the family's lawyer, Diane Keaton as Michael's increasingly despairing wife, Kay, and John Cazale as uh, the weak older brother, Fredo. Coppola handles a lot of this material very well, as in the earlier film he reveals himself as a master of mood, atmosphere, and period, and his exposition is in inventive and subtle. The film requires the intelligent participation of the viewer as Michael attempts to discover who betrayed him and attempted his assassination. He tells different stories to different people, keeping his own counsel, and we have to think as he does so we can tell the truth from the lies. That's why you really have to pay attention because Michael does feed people different stories to see. You know, they say you want to find out the truth, you flush out pipes. You send water down one way and the truth will come out the other end, and that's basically what Michael was doing. He gave Fredo enough rope to hang himself, but he did not know it was Fredo. Fredo got drunk and started talking, and, you know, upon meeting Johnny Ola, he says, Michael's like, this is Johnny Ola, nice to meet you. Never heard it, like, oh, some friends down here, Hyman Roth, Johnny Olin, never met him. Sees Johnny later that night, Johnny, nice to meet you. They get out later to what I can only believe is some kind of sick um, bestiality show because a woman, they were going to make a woman, whatever. I think it was a horse or something, I don't know. You know, uh, Fredo gets liquored up and Michael's listening and not thinking anything of it. Oh, old man Roth had never come here. But Johnny, you know, he's no Z spots like the back of his hand. He took me here once. OK, you told me you had never met Johnny Fredo. OK. That's how Michael figures it out. You lied to me. Now I know you played a part in this. Whether directly or indirectly, you're a part of this, and they almost killed me, and it could have killed my wife and my children. Would I have gone as far as Michael to kill my brother? Absolutely fucking not. But Michael Corleone is a lot different than Derek Lamont Jackson, and that's what I want you guys to understand. There is a fascination with Costa Nostra. Okay, there's a fascination. And uh, if you start The Godfather, by the end, you're like, Michael's right. He did the right thing. I'm still on the fence about uh, Carlo. I don't think he should have killed his brother-in-law. By the time The Godfather two, Part 2 is over, you're like, this motherfucker's crazy. Who would do these type of things? Michael Corleone, that's who. And that's why Al Pacino did such a fucking phenomenal job. Because Al Pacino, for all intents and purposes, is an awesome guy from what I've been told. But, you know, <laughs> it, this is why you're paid to act. And this is why he gets paid the big bucks since then. 
Pacino is very good at suggesting the theories and passions that lie just beneath his character's control exterior. He gives us a Michael who took over the family with intention of making it legitimate in five years, but is who, who is drawn more and more deeply into the Bizonite web of deceit and betrayal, all papered over with code words like respect, honor, and gratitude. By the film's end, he has been abandoned by almost everyone except those who work for him and fear him, and he is a very lonely man. But what was his sin? It was not as we might have imagined or hoped that he presided over a bloody enterprise of murder and destruction. No, Michael's fault seems to be pride. He has lost the common touch, the dignity he should have inherited from his father, and because he has misplaced his humanity, he must suffer. Yes, again, how many times can I say it? Don Vito was very different than Michael, and obviously you see it play out. Coppola suggests this by contrast. His scenes about Don Vito's early life could almost be taken as a campaign biography, and the most unfortunate flashbacks were given the young Vitor intervening on behalf of a poor widow who is being evicted from her apartment. The Don seems more like a precinct captain than a gangster, and we're left with the unsettling impression that Coppola thinks things would have turned out all right for Michael if he had the old man's touch. And now that you mention it, yeah, if Michael was a bit more like his father, I don't know if Kay goes away. Now, the flashbacks give Coppola the greatest difficulty in maintaining his, pe- his pace and narrative force. The story of Michael told chronologically and without the other material would have had would have had really substantial impact but coppola prevents our complete involvement by breaking the tension the flashbacks to new york in the early 1900s have a different a nostalgic tone and the audience has to keep shifting gears coppola was reportedly advised by friends to forget the don Vito material and stick with michael and that was good advice there's also some evidence in the film that coppola never completely mastered the uh, chaotic mass of material in his screenplay some scenes seem oddly pointless why do we get almost no sense of michael's actual dealings in cuba again and this is why i say why was hoth hyman roth trying to kill michael corleone and i know somebody's going to comment on this later and be like you idiot this is why yeah but guess what they don't pick up on it either because we're never told exactly what's going to happen in cuba we just know that they'll be working with the government and hyman roth tells them we're, you know, we're Michael, we're bigger than U.S. still. Soon we'll have the power to put a man in the White House. Right? Show us a bit more from Cuba. That's all I'm saying. Uh, lots of expensive footage about the night of Castro's takeover and others seem not completely explained. I'm still not qu- quite sure who really did order that attempted garroting in the Brooklyn Saloon. Uh, what we're left with then are a lot of good scenes and good performances set amidst a mass of undisciplined material and handicapped by plot construction that prevents the story from ever really rebuilding. There is, for example, the brilliant audacity of the first uh, communion party for Michael's son, which Coppola directs as counterpoint to the wedding scene that opened The Godfather. There's Lee Strasberg's two-edged performance as Hyman Roth, the boss of Florida and Cuban operations. Strasberg gives us a soft-spoken, almost kindly old man and then reveals his still-hard interior. You see his eyes light up when Michael asked who ordered the hit on Pantangeli. Remember, they tried to kill Frank Pantangeli, and that's why he started talking, and that's how they basically ended up the Senate hearings and all that. Hyman Roth tells him there was a guy who had an idea about a town that was a stopover for GIs on their way out to the West Coast. That town became Las Vegas. That man's name was Mo Green, and there isn't even a statue to, uh, to his remembrance in the town. Somebody put a bullet in his eye. I knew Mo. I knew he flew off the handle. I don't know who gave the order, but when Mo got killed, I said, "This is the business we've chose." He's basically telling Michael, "I know you gave the order to kill my friend. Don't ask me about trying to kill Frank Pantangeli because I don't want to talk about it." 
This is the business we've chosen. And Hyman Roth is absolutely right. You can't kill one of my guys and then ask me questions about somebody trying to kill one of your guys. Uh, Also, we never find out what happened to Clemenza, and I think that is a terrible, terrible oversight. Uh, There's Coppola's use of sudden, brutal bursts of violence to punctuate the film's brooding progress. There's Pacino suggesting everything, telling nothing. But Coppola is unable to draw all this together and make it work. The level of simple, absorbing narrative, the stunning text of The Godfather is replaced in part two with prologues, epilogues, footnotes, and good intentions. Um, Guys, that's it. It's literally one of the greatest films of all time. And there's not really much more I can say to hype it up. But I would tell you, if you have Peacock, The Godfather Trilogy is available on Peacock and The Godfather Coda, which is The Godfather 3 with some scenes reworked and things like that. I started it. They moved some stuff around, so it makes it really hard to keep up. Eventually, I am going to go back and finish it. But, yeah, The Godfather 1 and 2 are absolutely brilliant. Uh, Some of the greatest films I've ever fucking seen. And, again, this is why I'm doing this series. So that is our episode on The Godfather Part 2. Stay tuned for episode three in which we will cover goodfellas understanding what the life means to somebody on the outside aka henry hill and how those things go and anytime i get to talk about lorraine bracco i'm a down i just i love lorraine bracco if lorraine bracco if you hear this i love you hard eyes the whole thing anyway as always my name is Derek lamont jackson this is patreon.com slash Derek lamont experience or somewhere down the road, you you could be listening to this on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, etc. Tell your friends and family, subscribe to Patreon.com slash The Derek Lamont Experience. I got to get going. Peace out, you guys.